Well, good morning, folks. Today, we're going to continue in our series on the Gospel of Mark, and we've gotten into uh, a, a real turning point in uh, Jesus's mission, uh, one in which he be, be, is very open about the, the fact that he is at war, uh, involved in a, in, a, in a spiritual battle uh, with someone called the strong man. And uh, if you recall last week, we talked about the political theater in which he very much uh, took on uh, the, the scribes of the Pharisees up in Galilee. And today we have a, 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 a new story that where uh, after which we, we see that Jesus is engaged in you know, very open conflict uh, with uh, those who oppose God's will. So let's get into it. To begin with that, I want to begin with a confession uh, that I can explain by alluding to someone else in the Western canon besides, uh, uh, you know, the Bible. And that is uh, William Shakespeare. You guys will remember from Hamlet. Uh, this comes from Act uh, uh, Act One, the fifth scene, in which uh, Horatio and Hamlet have, uh, are discussing Hamlet's experience of the ghost, and the ghost being old Hamlet's ghost, and and uh, they're in conversation, and and Horatio replies, "Oh, day and night, but this is wondrous strange." And Hamlet replies, "And therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome." Meaning, give it welcome, giving his report of, of this having rec experienced the ghost as a, a welcome. And he says this to Horatio, his, his friend There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt, in your, uh, dreamt of in your philosophy. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And I recall this as I remember that I am an I am a child of the enlightenment and my confession before you is that I uh, am one of those folks who um, has been brought up in such a scientific way that I tend to see the world in a very materialist way a, a way in which all things can be explained in terms of matter and I I have uh, at times a struggle to recognize that there uh, are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt on dreamt of in my enlightenment philosophy of materialism. Materialism is one of those things that we swim in, sort of like white privilege. You know, we can't see it because we're immersed in it. Uh, it's the way we were taught in school to see things. But there is, in fact, uh, more to the world in that. We have what I call an enlightenment uh, blindness. I love it. It, it that Shakespeare begins his tale uh, of Hamlet uh, uh, with these two students who were at Wittenberg, the University of Wittenberg in Germany in 1517. I think it's not a coincidence that that is actually the same year in the same place where Luther launched his um, launched us on the Reformation, this Enlightenment uh, uh way of seeing our own faith uh, that, uh, you know, he, he launched with his 95 theses by, by literally nailing them on the door at the church at Wittenberg. And, and Shakespeare, of course, was brought up during a time in England uh, in which England itself, the Church of England, was, was engaged in a, in a grand struggle over how to understand our faith, and and we had and, and you know when this was written uh, uh, published in 1603, uh, Shakespeare had gone through uh, an incredible struggle, which was was basically a struggle between uh, the 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 folks who saw the world in a very mystical way, a very spiritual way, and those who were beginning to see it in this enlightenment way. And so they had just gone through the stripping of the altars. This time when all the the, the altars of the Church of England were stripped of of, um, 
of the things that uh, uh, were, were of, of the architectural elements that were part of the Roman Catholic way of performing the Eucharist. And they were stripped of all things ornamental. There was an attack on uh, mystical ways of seeing the world. And there arose this new way of practicing our faith, faith out of Cambridge, which we now uh, experience uh, in, in residual mode as, uh, as, as biblical fundamentalism, biblical literalism. But there was this, this advent of a of a materialist way of of naming and describing our faith and so spiritual things you know we became too smart to to see spiritual things we know that those did not have reality that only material things that we could hear smell um uh, touch etc um you know had had physical reality metaphysical reality and we in our faith over time became reduced to biblical proof texting and not 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 universally i'm not making such a claim but there were these counter movies there were these these conflicts it's it's interesting shakespeare was a, a contemporary of anglicanism's great preacher lancelot andrews and some of andrews sermon words actually appear in some of shakespeare's works and some of shakespeare's works appear as the original work of lancelot andrews and and, and Lancelot Andrews was one of those who pushed back against this materialism, this way of seeing uh, the, the world, which denies the reality of spiritual things. And I say all of this to remind us that we uh, have a struggle in the West with the notion of there being a reality beyond our material world. And I think if, if we don't name that first, it'll be hard for us to understand what Mark is describing in this story that we've just heard from the Gospel of Mark chapter three. So I want to make several points today with that little um, prologue and ask you to join with me in, in, uh, in clearing our eyes of these filters we've been given from the Enlightenment and then to engage and understand a world that the biblical world understood to be one filled with spiritual beings, filled with material beings. And, uh, and that's very important to our understanding. And so I want to make several points. First point is that the strong man seeks to sustain his kingdom over and against the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating. And so who is the strong man? Uh, so I just want to bring that out because that's essential to our text today. Um, and, and there are several names that, that Mark uses and that, that scripture uses for the strong man. And I'll go through some of these, but but you'll recognize some of these uh, you know, from, from uh, the New Testament. You know, the strong man is often called the God of this age or the or sometimes a strong man is called the ruler of this age or rulers of this age uh, sometimes uh the 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 demons the, the powers and principalities are personified uh concepts like life death and the present and uh and i'll show you an example of that shortly and sometimes you can see classically in paul uh talking about uh, the the uh you know angels who could be either you know fallen or are uh, you know fulfilling their role that god had given them and also even it, paul will talk about the height depth and, and other creatures the important point is that there was under this understanding that there was this spiritual world that was uh in, in which we were living in which we continue to live in and uh in which these this the strong man has established a kingdom in which we live and and the and so the powers and principalities are the custodians of this era this this era and uh, and, and and during this era they oppose what god is desires for us what god is doing in the world and they they do their best these these spiritual beings do their best to uh, lead us astray to tempt us away from uh from the worship of the one true god 
And uh, and uh, the other point I would make in all of this is that Scripture not only describes and presupposes this world, but also makes the claim that this world is passing away. So we live, you know, here uh, in between times, between the times which in which God's will will be fulfilled, and the time in which. Uh, before uh, there was the incarnation. And so uh, the, the, the strong man's kingdom is passing away, but it's still present and being replaced by, by God's kingdom. But we still experience that temptation. So I mentioned some of these things. So in 2 Corinthians 4, 40, for example, you see Paul talking about the God of this age who blinds our minds. And in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6 and 8, talks about uh, uh, you know, when you're mature in faith, you speak wisdom, uh, but but it's not a wisdom of this age or, or of the rulers of this age. And so it talks about when we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we don't speak the wisdom that is recognized as wisdom by the rulers of this age. And then Paul in his famous uh, uh, poetry in, in Romans 8, uh, beginning at verse 38, uh, names these powers and principalities. And you'll notice they're in, in doublets, you know, death against life, angels versus rulers, things present versus things to come, powers, and then in a triplet, powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. All of these things that they under, were understood to be spiritualized, personified uh, powers and principalities that tempt us from uh, living the life that God has given us. Paul is reminding us that none of these, because of Christ Jesus, will separate us from the love of God. And, uh, and, and so uh, there was this presuppose world in which there were these spiritual beings. And, and so that was so important that Paul spoke in the letter to Ephesus and reminded them of this, uh, that uh, we need God's strength to protect us against the strong man. So he says, put on God's armor so that you can make a stand against the tricks of the devil, the devil, Satan. Uh, those were also common words uh, of the minions of, of the strong man. And so what we find when we think about the uh, the powers and the principalities is that uh, there uh, there are things that we experience that we understand we experience in life. And, and there's some things that seem to be um, so uh, um, pervasive and yet invisible to us that we can sort of experience them. And so therefore, we begin to personify them. And as you can see, Paul personified those. Uh, uh, those things, and such as death and life, and and uh, and sin, and all in all of these other concepts I've just went through. So there is this personification that seems to give to the devil, to Satan, and to these others this intellect and a will. So they seem to be acting intentionally to interfere with our desire to follow God's will. And if this is hard for us to grapple with in our time as it is for me at times. Let me just give you the, the metaphor of a computer virus. This is something that I'm sure that many of you have experienced, uh, malware. Uh, and what are these but systemic processes that we can't see that that replicate themselves? And so as they as, as they touch you, then you touch someone else, sort of like any other kind of virus, then, then they just sort of multiply. They replicate themselves. Uh, they're very contagious, and 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 but they're malevolent. They, they don't uh, act to do good, they act to destroy. Uh, and when, yet when you have been attacked by uh, a computer virus or by malware or ransomware, any of these things, you certainly feel like it's a very personal attack. And I, I think that's a very good way for us to understanding, for us to understand what the Bible assumes to be true about our world, that we live in a world in which beyond our own human sinfulness, beyond our 
own capacity to do evil, there are these uh, powers in principalities that uh, can attack us in a very personal way. We might use language like spiritual attack to describe that. And that leads us to an understanding of demons. And I want to suggest to you that when we see demons described in Scripture, that we understand that there's something that we experience today. They're not something that our materialist world should be denying, but uh, but that our our spiritual world should be uh, affirming in terms of their reality. And what are they? But things that we have created, things that exist in the created order that are in some way betraying uh, the their mission, the you know the, uh, the the vocation that God had given them, and so that's what a demon is. And the problem is when demonic uh, things that have become demonic structures and, and systems that we have created become demonic. When they become networked, well, they can come together, and we experience them as a domination system. And that's surely what uh, the New Testament presupposes about the Roman Empire, for example, uh, in and of itself, one place or the other, uh, you know, one aspect of it, you know, uh, or another might be individually uh, just fine. But when coupled with others, they experienced it as a system of domination. So if you are struggling to think about uh, this experience of the demonic, some of the things that help me are to remember times uh, when when there have been uh, inexplicable, uh, spontaneous uh, um, acts of of human sin, and and one of the just is most recent for me is is seeing perfectly. Uh, good, wholesome teachers and fire, uh, fire, um, fire, firemen and women and, and, and police officers and uh, business persons, et cetera, uh, go to our national capital and get caught up in this frenzy of the mob. And then you have the images that we saw of someone taking a flagpole and beating somebody with the American flag and, and all of those other types of things that we've discussed many times. Uh, if you've seen uh, most recently, you know, the, the, the affliction of someone all of a sudden uh, uh, taking their child and jumping off the building of the hotel has happened here in Rochester, that panicked suicide. If you've, if you've worked within an environment which there is this pervasive, uh, hostile, uh, dysfunctional uh, corporate ethos that, that it seems to be inescapable, um, or if you suffered at the hands of white supremacy uh, or other forms of ideology by which uh, the establishment uh, uh, sustains itself. I watched with the kids yesterday uh, the movie about Jackie Robinson, 42, and I saw a good example of this in that movie. I, uh, uh, it, was, it was a time when Jackie Robinson went to, uh, with, the, with the Dodgers to play the Cincinnati Reds, and uh, they were in the stands was a, was a, a man who was cheering Pee Wee Reese on and things like that. Um, and, and then when Jackie Robinson came out, uh, he, he began uh, uttering all of these profanities against Jackie Robinson, using the N-word and all these other things uh, to denigrate him. And his little boy sitting right next to him, <clears throat> all caught up in his first baseball game, listens to his father, and he sort of, you can see him feeling torn and you feel, see him getting infected with this contagion. And then he too starts to parrot his father with the same racist screeds. So uh, these are what we call the powers and principalities. And, and the point that uh, Dr. Walter Wink, a Methodist theologian makes about them in his trilogy that uh, studies these, is that uh, they're everywhere around us and they're, and they're, they're, they're 
the presence is inescapable. And the question is not whether we believe in them, but whether we can learn to see them, whether or not we can have eyes to identify them in our actual everyday encounters so that we can do something about them. And uh, one last point about that, I just want to reiterate, you know, their present form of this world is passing away. The present form of this world is passing away because God is acting to destroy them. And that's one of the things that we see today in our text. Uh, but the, that, that creates a crisis for the strong man, obviously, because his kingdom is under attack. And so in response, what does the strong man do? Well, the strong man seeks to sustain his kingdom. And so that's really the first point I want to make uh, today is that in response to these attacks, a strong man acts through the systems to, to sustain his established kingdom against what God is trying to do. How does he do that? Well, that brings me to my second point today, which is that one of the ways that he does that is the strong man attacks through our families, making attacks on our families. And we see this in our scripture today. Jesus entered a house and uh, he, he gathered. He's back at, at most likely uh, Peter's house uh, in Capernaum, scholars think. Uh, and important point here, his, his family had heard what was happening. And, and, and meaning by that, they heard the things we've been reading about in the past. These 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 uh, acts in which Jesus is engaged in political theater, uh, challenging the authority of the scribes of the Pharisees, challenging the authority of the Herodians, uh, doing these healings, actually healing on the Sabbath, doing these things that. Uh, John Lewis, I think today would have called good trouble. Getting into trouble was the problem, though, for the family. And that, that presented all sorts of problems to them. And so uh, they heard and they came to take control of him. They came to do a family intervention. And they said they were doing that because our Jesus is out of his mind. The strong man, folks, attacks our families. And, and, and uh, when we think about families, what are the, what's the purpose of a family? Families are a creation of God. That's what we see in, the, in Scripture. They're created for a purpose. They're the means. They're the, the most fundamental means by which we, uh, which God, through which God nurtures and sustains us so that we are brought up in a, in a framework, in an environment where we learn to, to practice companionship, to practice bread sharing, which is uh, the practice through which the gift of fellowship is spread and spread throughout the world so that all people learn to live in fellowship with God and each other. So that's families are a crucial uh, institution uh, in, in, in the holy economy of God. The problem is our families can become distorted institutions. We begin to fixate on things that are, are, are not worthy of our clinging. Uh, we, become, we begin to uh, engage in idolatry, even in the family context. And so what becomes important in, in uh, cultures is the family's honor, the power and the wealth of the family. And, and so in classic uh, first century um, sociology, you know, the, the, the role of the male was to accumulate honor and power for the family. And the role of the female was to pr pr protect the family from shame. Uh, but when you're doing that, then you're not focusing on this bread sharing. You're actually focusing on something that is actually what God's will, uh, what's not God's will for the family. You're focusing on something else. So it's a form of idolatry. Now, we have uh, all sorts of idolatrous family interventions we can point to in which we can uh, uh, you know, recognize what Jesus's family uh, must have felt like. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of what it must have felt like for our fathers and mothers 
of, uh, of, of daughters who, who began marching uh, in, in the West to uh, to obtain the, the right to vote, attacking the established order or or going to work in the night. We see records of, of of fathers going to and doing interventions with their daughters when they uh, first of all, when they went to work rather than staying at home. And then secondly, when they went to work in places where females were not supposed to work, uh, according to the norms. I I remember the story of Martin Luther King Sr. when the bombings happened in Birmingham because of Martin Luther King Jr.'s success, his his father swept down upon the city of Birmingham out of Atlanta and and, and demanded that his son get in the car with him and 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 uh, and in return and leave Birmingham. Um, Before this, he'd done it in Montgomery as well, uh, intervening, saying uh, not just that you're not safe. It wasn't just an expression of concern for Martin Luther King Jr. in terms of his safety and the safety of his family, but it was also a concern that he was bringing shame upon all the the family name that Martin Luther King Sr. had uh, helped to create. I'm reminded of uh, uh, that scoundrel uh, Beckwith. I can't remember his first name, but he's the guy who shot uh, uh, Meredith uh, uh, Egger, uh, in, in Mississippi, who was the head of the, uh, NAACP, uh, and, and, uh, my shame is that he he was an Episcopalian who uh, saw his role within the church and, and, and was very, very prominent within the church in terms of of trying to uh, get congregations to resist this this tide of desegregation and and calling it God's will uh, to to maintain uh, the segregated order. Um, I'm thinking of of black parents who saw their children at the Children's Miracle in Birmingham and had shame to see their children children joining the marches and had fear. And so they tried to intervene and pull their kids out of the, the marches in Birmingham when they marched uh, uh, for the for uh, for better conditions and and uh, tried to intervene and their children resisting them as much as they could so that they can continue to 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 uh, to lift up their voices for what they thought to be God's will for them. I'm thinking of my own father uh, who intervened with my brother and with me when we both discerned a call to the ministry, saying that being a minister uh, was uh, was not what I was called to be uh, because my calling was to make money. Uh, my brother's calling was to make money and to support our families financially uh, and to pursue wealth, et cetera, or how he uh, felt it was something it would bring shame upon the, the, his granddaughters if they were to uh, be involved in in uh, in in athletics, which caused uh, girls to sweat, Uh, you know, very common establishment types of rules that were in the heads of folks in intervening. I think with pride of those of you uh, who were involved in the rights for uh, gay and transgender persons, but I can imagine, only imagine how you would have had friends and family seek to intervene with you because you were attacking the established order. Um, So the strong man attacks our families whenever we start to uh, seek 
to do God's will. Uh, and, and, and there are certain clues that uh, we are under a spiritual check when our attack, when our own language is, begins to be filled with this language that resonates with shame or some sort of stigma. And the goal is, is to avoid that shame or stigma. You know, in, in the case of, of, of today's scripture, Jesus, he's out of his mind. And when our motivating factor is, is to protect, you know, the shame that might go along with that, uh, well, then that's a, a good sign that we are under spiritual attack. Uh, and also when we see these rigorous defenses of these hierarchies of human value that we've established, such as uh, when uh, there was the attack of uh, attack on Bishop Duncan Gray uh, in Mississippi, uh, when he uh, when he preached um, for the, the right to vote of black persons in Mississippi. Uh, so when there are these, these structures uh, of, of, of defense, uh, of the established order, uh, that's a good sign that our that that our families are under attack uh, by the strongman. So the, the strongman attacks our families, but the strongman also, and my third point, attacks our institutions. And then, so we see this in the scripture today, uh, where Jesus, uh, where, where scripture tells us, Mark tells us that uh, the Pharisees came down from Jerusalem. Now these weren't the Pharisees of, uh, excuse me, these were not the uh, scribes of the. Pharisees, as in our last story last week, these are the scribes of Jerusalem. So these are the the ones who had the legal authority to put to put Jesus to death. They they ultimately would do that. We know for the crime of blasphemy, and so uh, we see something very sinister here. Over and over, they went about following Jesus around and saying he's uh, possessed by Beelzebul. That's an invention. That name is an invention of Marx, as far as we can tell. tell. Um, and, and saying that, that Jesus, whatever you see Jesus doing, when you see these acts by which he is you know, freeing people of demons or are uh, healing people, these acts, you shouldn't misunderstand, folks. These are, are not acts of God, because if they were, we would be in favor of them. No, these are, these are acts that come from the, the ruler of demons, Meaning that Jesus, they're saying that Jesus's acts are demonic. Now, if this seems outrageous to you, well, we should just remember we see this same kind of dog whistle politics in our in our own lives. Whenever we take on uh, institutions, uh, there uh, during the the nonviolent movement, uh, um, there was great political pressure put upon President Kennedy. Uh, by Martin Luther King to issue a second Emancipation Proclamation. The idea being that we'll never get it through a white majority Congress, you know, the, the, the end of segregation. And so by presidential decree, King thought uh, Kennedy should go about that. Uh, you know, after putting that kind of pressure, what happens? Well, the scribe from Jerusalem, you know, came out in the form of our friend J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI head. And uh, so after that political pressure on Kennedy, what we saw were agents coming down from Washington, uh, tapping uh, not just King, but uh, King's colleagues lines and then began combating him actively. You know, just as the scribes of, Wash of, of, of Jerusalem went around behind Jesus saying this is all from Bezabul, um, uh, the FBI actually, and we know this from the archives, uh, began planting newspaper uh articles, columns, and such, accusing Martin Luther King of being a communist. And today we hear that same kind of dog whistle politics um, uh, whenever anyone uh, presses 
forward on civil rights today, the you know the the response to them is this 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 historic one of we just labeled them a communist or a Marxist, uh, and we can discredit them. Uh, we we saw uh, similarly when when there were efforts to register blacks, poor blacks, to vote in both Mississippi and Alabama. How did the authorities respond to this uh, change in the established these attacks on the established order? Well, they used their power to deprive uh, those folks who had registered. They put their names uh, on the boards in the post offices. Every one of them who had, who had been who had been who had sought to register and been denied, they put them in the post office so that they could be uh, shunned. Uh, but uh, and, and their in their economic impact of their jobs perhaps being lost, uh, you know, put upon them. But they also deprived them of food aid. They used their power to prevent the federal food from being distributed to them. And they did this during uh, a time when cotton prices plummeted, and so the economy uh, put such folks in dire straits. And and today we are seeing it just in today's news. This effort to to empower poll watchers today with the ability locally uh, without accountability really of any kind to uh, uh, to to discredit the votes of those who would vote against uh, uh, the the established orders um, agenda. So the strongman attacks our institutions. Now, one of the problems that I mentioned earlier is when when we have institutions that in and of themselves are good, but they become infected uh, by uh, the powers in the principalities, and that then these things, uh, you know, in other words, which, which is to say that they begin to betray their vocation to do good. Uh, and then when these things are networked together, we can get very sinister results. And so one example I would give you is, is something that is perfect perfectly, uh, you know, very much, not perfectly, but very much a blessing to us is our free market society and our justice system and our policing system and and an idea, an economic idea of, of it was really a legal fiction of leasing property. Well, you put all those things together in our time and what we've developed is something quite sinister, the, the privatization of our prisons, which has led to the mass incarnation, excuse me, mass incarceration of black males. Uh, we've provided a profit incentive to local communities to cause police folks to to uh, earn fees for their departments uh, by picking up uh, minorities, not just blacks, but minorities, and at a disproportionate level, um, incarcerating them, depriving them of the vote along the way. And so that's an example of the strong man attacking our institutions that were meant for the good and, 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 and causing evil to be done. So the next point I want to make is that the strong man attacks our uh, institutions and that Jesus then comes and binds the strong man. And that's the good news today. And so we see that in our gospel story where uh, we see Jesus responding to these scribes from Jerusalem who are accusing him of doing the good he's doing, doing his healings and, and doing his exorcisms, uh, you know, due to his as being an agent of visible. Uh, and, and, and he first, you know, just flips their argument back on them. And he says, okay, let's take, let's take what you're saying literally. You're saying that I'm an agent of Satan. Well, then how, if I am actually doing exorcisms, how can Satan cast out Satan? If I am Satan, how can I cast out myself from these people? And he, and he says, if a kingdom is divided, and in this case, he's talking about Satan's kingdom. If a kingdom is divided against itself, well, then it can't stand. 
If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Now, by the way, this is a clever illusion in Mark's uh, uh, um, parlance because the, the, you know a house divided against itself uh, in many minds would would denote the house that is known as God's house, Jerusalem, the, the temple. If the temple is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And of course, as I shared with you before, uh, the people in Jerusalem uh, who, who managed the temple were very much divided uh, at the time that Mark wrote his gospel. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. And so you're, you're, what you're, you're accusing me of doesn't make any sense. And then he says this, but, and now he echoes the, the text that Tom read us from Isaiah. Uh, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Well, then, if he does that, then the house can be plundered. And Jesus is describing exactly what Jesus is doing. I want to remind you that Jesus has already done battle with the strong man. Going back to the, our very first story, the prologue of Mark, uh, Jesus was uh, baptized and immediately was uh, forced by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he underwent temptation by Satan. And he won that battle. He, he was, he was uh, taken care of by God's angels, it, it Mark reports. And so uh, scholars here read this and remind uh, us that Jesus has already done battle with the strong man and emerged um, uh, um, whole from that. In fact, he immediately began his mission. Uh, he uh, went into Galilee, then immediately after do, uh, binding up the strong man, ha, then he went about the, the plundering aspect of it, going back and taking, taking the captives of, of Satan uh, back through proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news, saying, "Okay, folks, I have bound up the I have bound up the strong man. Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives, and trust in the good news. Follow me along the way of love." So Jesus binds the strong man for us. He conquered him in the wilderness, and then he began to inaugurate his kingdom by plundering the strong man's house. Now, one of the other things that Jesus does is he names our dog whistles, our own dog whistles, as acts of a people who are captive to the strong man. And you can see that he does that uh, by responding to the uh, to the um, scribes of Jerusalem by, by saying to them that, uh, that they themselves are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit because these are Jesus's, uh, Jesus's acts are the acts of God in freeing the people. And so the ones who are actually uh, acting in a demonic way uh, are, are the scribes of the, of the Jerusalem themselves. So the fifth point I want to make is that Jesus unmasks the powers for a reason. And it's so that we might cooperate with God in helping to bind the strong man in our time. And so the way we, Jesus gets into this is, uh, is, is, is the rest of the story about his family. His family was concerned. They decided to do an intervention, and eventually they arrive. 
Uh, but yet they, they arrived. Jesus is in the house and they stood outside. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is taught to honor his mother, honor his father. His family is outside. They're not they're not invited in as you would expect a mother to be. Uh, they are left outside. And so they have to send word to him. They have to call for him in order to do this intervention. And they do. Meanwhile, uh, they were on the outside. There was a, a group of insiders, the crowd, the, the, the people of the land were seated around them in that house. And and so um, and, and, and so they, they, they told, hey, your mother, your brothers and sisters are outside looking for you. And Jesus responds. He says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he looked around at those seated around him in a circle. And he, and he, he said, he said, look here are my mother and brothers. You know, these, those of you seated with, seated with me now. And he gives us this rule. Whoever does God's will is my brother, sister, and mother. And so by so discriminating between those who do God's will and those who do not, Jesus calls us to bind the straw man. Surely we want to sit in that circle with Jesus. But there's some important insights, I think, here. First of all, that when a power pursues a vocation other than the one for which God created that as a blessing, it was meant to bless, and, and instead uh, becomes perverted and makes its own interest the highest good, whether that, 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 uh, that power is a family institution or uh, one of our corporate institutions, whenever it begins to become uh, focused where its own interests are the highest good, rather than being uh, an instrument of blessing, of, of, of blessing God's people, well, then that power becomes demonic. That's how we recognize that something is demonic. In our task as the people seated as an insider sitting around at the, in the house with Jesus, um, well, our task is to learn to unmask that, to name that idolatry, to reform that institution and, and call that power back to being what God intended it to be, which is a means of blessing for not just a few, but for all of the world. And the way that we learn to do that unmasking is by walking along the way of love. And that's what Jesus is teaching his disciples to do. Because as we walk along the way of love, our eyes are transformed. Our minds are transformed. We receive eyes to be able to see and to recognize these powers and principalities. And we learn to help Jesus conquer them in Jesus's name. And that's what we are called to do today. And that's what I pray we will always strive to be uh, as the people of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.